So I, I did that um, Passover lamb on purpose because I want you to have that image in your mind. And I want you to imagine that you are <clears throat> you're in Israel or you're actually in Egypt during the time of the ten plagues. And nine plagues have not convinced Pharaoh to let your people go. And so you are 10, 11, 12 years old. You're, you're just a young child. And your dad calls you to go with him out to the barn, and you find the prize lamb, and it is the best lamb, and maybe you think it's a little cute, and you think it's kind of silly, and dad takes the lamb, and he places it on the, on the, whatever, the bench, and he takes his machete or his hatchet or whatever he's taking his axe, and he raises his arm to kill that lamb, and you're just like, you're, you're blown away. Dad, 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 what are you doing? And dad says, um, I'm killing the lamb. And, and you say to dad, Why? What has the lamb done? And and dad says, nothing. The lamb's done nothing. But God is angry with our nation. And he's instructed us to kill a lamb, take some of its blood, and put it on the doorpost. And he says, "Well, well, why does the lamb have to die? And he says, because if I do not kill the lamb, you'll be dead by morning. I think you would say as a child, kill the lamb. Kill that lamb. And he says, God's death angel is visiting us tonight. And if he sees the blood over the doorpost, the death angel will pass over our house. But in every house where there's no blood on the doorpost, the death angel will come in and kill the firstborn. That is God's judgment against anyone who does not have blood on the doorpost. Now, we have the benefit of the New Testament. In the New Testament, it says this in in Hebrews 9.22. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This Passover lamb, this sacrificial lamb, was one of literally hundreds of thousands of lambs through the rest of Israel's um, history until the time of Jesus that were sacrificed to cover the sins of a sinful nation. God commanded the Israelites to celebrate Passover every year on the 14th of Nisan, which is their first month of the year, and it's usually around um, April or May, uh, April or March. Um, And so the Jewish people during Old Testament times, they would take their lambs, they would take them to the, to the priest, and the priest at 3 o'clock in the afternoon would kill the sacrificial lamb, and at 3.30, offer the lamb. They would blow the shofar, which was a ram's horn. And so if you can picture in your mind this, this walled city of Jerusalem, old Jerusalem, um, the, the Temple Mount is the highest thing anywhere around. And so if you're anywhere around the old walled city and the shofar, the ram's horn is blown, you will pause and you will think, there is a lamb being killed right this moment so that I don't have to die for my sins. And that people all over Israel would do that. And both the daily sacrifice, which was every day, there were actually two, there was one at 9 a.m., there was one at 3 p.m., and then the Passover lamb um, were offered symbolically to cover over sin. Because we just read this verse, Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And you have to understand this sacrificial system, the sacrificial lamb of the Old Testament and hundreds of thousands of lambs being sacrificed, or you'll never understand John the Baptist statement in John 1.29. They just said it on the video. We're going to read it. The next day, this is John, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So instead of an animal sacrifice covering your sins until you sinned again and you had to have another animal sacrifice to cover your sins, Jesus came to remove our sins. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 5.21. God made him, and I put Jesus in there. That's my, uh, I put that in the, in the verse so you would know. God made Jesus sin, uh, who knew no sin, lost my place, to be sin for us so that in him, 
in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. This time, the innocent third party that had to give its life so that you could have life was a human sacrifice. And when Jesus was sacrificed, it was, it was a human sacrifice. It was the end of the animal sacrifices. He, was, he died once for all for our sins to take away our sins. Now, God is a God of details. And so if you were guessing, what time do you think Jesus gave up his life? 3 p.m. in the afternoon. That's when Luke tells us, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he had breathed his last. Jesus offered his life as a substitute. Never one of you knows what a substitute is. That's the day you don't have to do as much work in school, right? Jesus offered himself as a substitute, but he will not force you to accept him as a substitute. You can stand before God and offer him your life and say, here's my measly offering, this is why I should get into heaven. Or you can accept what Jesus did and be adopted into his family. Jesus himself said, if you accept my sacrifice, you are adopted and you're a child of the light, a child of God. He says, if you reject my life, You remain a child of the darkness. Only children of light get into heaven. Children of darkness are are cast into a place called hell where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And the Bible tells us it's a place of eternal torment, eternal darkness. You have to make a choice while you're alive. Now, if you have asked Jesus to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, you've been adopted into his family. Then Paul gives some instructions to the church at Corinth, and the church at Corinth was probably the most spiritually gifted church in the history of the world because in Scripture it says they have all the spiritual gifts, and you'd think they were this this incredibly mature church, and you would be dead wrong. Paul wrote the letters to correct all kinds of stuff that was going on in the Corinthian church, and he has some instructions about the Lord's Supper. So we're going to read a big, long chunk of Scripture. We're going to tear it apart, and then we're going to have the Lord's Supper today. Here's what he says in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I cannot praise you, for it sounds as if more harm than good is being done when you meet together. So he's saying, when you come together as a church, it's worse than if you've never met as a church. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And to some extent, I believe it. And then he says something stunning here. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. If there weren't divisions in the church, he said, we wouldn't know who the true followers of God are and who they aren't. When you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. And then he says, what? Are you kidding me? My uh, favorite seminary professor, you know, there's a couple of times in Scripture where Paul says, God forbid, and he said it's the closest Paul ever came to cussing in Scripture. God forbid. Don't you have homes for eating and drinking, or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. So he said, I'm not telling you my rules. God gave me these rules. He found them out. And by the way, this is, if you read 1 Corinthians 15, he says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Paul didn't make it up. He was given this, and we can trace this, this writings back to within two or three years of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. There's no legend in the scripture. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you. 
On the night he was betrayed, Jesus was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. There's nothing magical. This is symbolic. He takes the Passover meal, he breaks some bread, and he said, this is my body. When you take it, you're taking my body. He says, this cup, it's my blood. It represents my blood. It's just symbolic. Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Now, here's what I want you to hear. And if you're not afraid to take the Lord's Supper today, I have not done my job. Anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily, let's say it this, an unworthy manner. I want you to repeat that, an unworthy manner. Anyone who drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself. It does not say examine your neighbor. Examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. Now, this should stun you. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some of you have even died, because you dared take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. I'll explain that more in a minute. That is why, I've got to read it again. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some of you have died. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. If you're really hungry, eat at home so you won't bring judgment upon yourself when you meet together. I'll give you some more instructions about the other matters after I arrive. So really, there's two things going on here. We're going to pull these apart. If you didn't get a listening guide, you can go to our app, and it's on there. But there's two things you need to understand. The first is the agape feast. Does anybody know what the word agape means? It means unconditional love. It's love, but it is God's type of love. And so they said, let's have an unconditional love feast. And, and Paul never saw the princess bride, but I think he would say if he had, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Because if it's an unconditional love feast, there wouldn't be the problems that I'm seeing in your church. And here's the first problem. If it's unconditional love, why are there divisions in your church? Why are there cliques? Why are the cool kids sitting over here and the not cool kids sitting over here? That's not unconditional love. That word does not mean what you think it means. Paul condemned the practice. But he said, at least we know. At least we know who the real followers of Christ are and who the pretenders are. He said, second, if this is an unconditional love feast, why is there selfishness in your church? See, the rich people would bring food. The the whole purpose was let's share what we have with others. In the book of Acts, when everybody in Jerusalem, when there was an incredible famine, people would sell their land. They would give the proceeds to the church so that everybody had food. The idea of an, of a, an agape feast is let's share those of us who have food. Let's give food to those who don't have food. But what was happening was the rich people were saying, hey, let's tell them we'll meet at noon, but let's come early and let's eat so that we get the good stuff and the poor people, it's not our fault they're poor. Let's give them the leftovers if there's anything left over. Paul says, no, no. 
He said, the original idea is to share. But what you've done to this unconditional love feast is you've made it disorder, gluttony, drunkenness. That's not what that word means. He says, when you do this, you do two things. You show you despise the church. And let me just tell you this. The church is the bride of Christ. You despise Janie Washburn, you and I are not going to be friends. Now, you can't imagine that. If you despise Doug Washburn, you can imagine that. You and Janie are not going to be friends. It's one of the things that I love about my wife. She says, somebody has a problem with you, they have a problem with me, and I can't be friends with them. You despise the bride of Christ, and you humiliate the poor. Then he adds, this is to your shame. Getting drunk is not the best way to celebrate Jesus' death on the cross. Shaming others because you've never looked into the eyes of someone who does not matter to God. Shaming someone who matters to God is the way you're going to prepare for the Lord's Supper, the agape feast? Come on. So he says, we don't even have, right? I think the closest thing we've ever had to that was um, when, when I was at a church, we, we would have a widow and widower's banquet thrown by the deacons, and it was really a cool thing. If somebody didn't have a way to come to church, they would go get them. It was an awesome thing. It's the closest thing I've ever seen to an unconditional love feast. We don't even do those. We do this next part, which is the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, how you experience the Lord's Supper today depends entirely upon the condition of your heart. And so he says, you better get your heart right. If not, some of you are going to get sick, and some of you are going to die because you dare despise the body of Jesus Christ. So how do we get right? Well, we remember three things. Remember that he died. We are coming to the table today celebrating the, the historical fact that Jesus was crucified on the cross and that he was raised. In the book of Acts, the only thing they preached for the first 50, 60 years of the church was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's real. Most of us have seen him alive. He died. We remember that. Second, we remember why he died as a substitute. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You do not get righteous on your own. You are unrighteous. All your deeds are like filthy rags, Isaiah tells us, unless you're adopted, unless the blood of Jesus removes your sin. When his blood is applied to the doorposts of your heart, the death angel, right? You're going to experience physical death unless Jesus returns before before we die. You're going to experience physical death. But Jesus said, whoever believes in me will never, never die. Talking about spiritual death. There's three kinds of death. There's physical death. There's spiritual death, which is separation from God, because Ephesians says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So you can be alive physically and separated from God. You can be spiritually dead. Happens all the time. But the worst is eternal death. Spiritual death is separation from God while you're alive. Eternal death is, is separation from God forever after you die in a place called hell where, there, where there's eternal darkness, eternal fire, eternal torment, where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. So you remember he died as a substitute for our sins. And I'm white as snow, not because Doug Washburn's white, but because Jesus Christ has adopted me and he's taken away my sins. So the death angel doesn't see my sins, he sees the righteousness of Christ imputed to me. Third thing we remember is how he died. 
Nobody took his life. He gave it up. He said that repeatedly. He predicted his death on the cross. And, and when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember the mob came to arrest him and Peter jumps out with the sword and I think he was trying to chop off the dude's head and he sucked so bad at sword play that he chopped off the high priest's servant's ear, right? He missed so bad. Here's what Jesus says to him. Don't you think I can call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? About 72,000 or so angels. He said, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Hey, Pete, this is God's plan. Put your sword away. It's always been God's plan. Before the foundation of the world, it was God's plan. Before there were people, before there were stars, before there was an atmosphere, this was God's plan that Jesus Christ would leave heaven to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, we've got to jump back to the Old Testament for just a minute. Moses has been up on, the, on Mount Sinai. He's come down not just with the two tablets, the Ten Commandments. He's come down with all the law of God. He was gone a long time, you know, if you know the story. He comes back down, and so he gathers all of Israel. There's, there's at least a million men, so there's probably two to three million when you count women and children, at the base of Mount Sinai, and he sits them down, and I'm sure he sat them down. Well, maybe not, because they, they usually stood up whenever they read the Scriptures. So they may have read the law. God gave him all the law, and he reads every bit of it to them, and the people say, we will do everything that the Lord has said. And Moses goes, all right then. He builds an altar. He takes one large stone for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, builds this altar, and he tells the folks to go sacrifice all the animals. He takes half of the blood of the animals, and he pours it on the altar because nothing is cleansed without blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The rest of the blood he puts in bowls, right? A million people. And he dips in this little thing, and he sprinkles the blood on the people. And he said, this blood begins the covenant. Go ahead and put that scripture up there. This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Covers them with blood. Why? Because there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. An innocent third party's blood. Now, fast forward in Jeremiah 31, 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make what kind of covenant? A new covenant. The first covenant with Moses was, was started with blood, sealed with blood. The new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. So Jesus gathers with his disciples for the Passover meal. And he says, today the new covenant begins. And he takes the third cup. There's four cups in the Passover meal. He takes the third cup, and it's the cup of redemption. And he says, this cup, the cup of redemption, begins the new covenant in my blood. Now, in Israel, when a young man wanted to marry a young woman, he would tell his father, the father would tell the young woman's father, they would arrange a time where the young man and his dad would go see the woman and her father in their home, and they would negotiate a price because the dad, the, the dad of the, the, the girl, was going to lose a worker, and they had to determine, okay, she's worth, I don't know, 3,000 shekels. I don't even know. I'm just making this up. When they agreed to a price... The young man would take the cup, pour some wine. This is the cup of redemption. Everybody in Israel knew this. And he would walk to the girl and he would say to her, I'm offering you my life. In, in our society, he got down on one knee. He said, I'm offering you my life. And if she took it, she could refuse it. But if she took the cup and she drank the cup, she said, yes, I do. 
I will marry you. And she was saying, when I drink the cup, I'm accepting your offer. I'm offering you my life in return. All that involves, I will forsake all others. I proposed to Janie at at the Hemisphere Tower in in, uh, San Antonio. And and I I still, I wish I had the picture. We got to find the picture because they took a picture right after I asked her and she said yes. And I was sweating bullets, you know. I thought she was going to say yes, but it was still a, you know, traumatic moment. And she was, she was freaked out because she thought she was getting earrings. And when she opened it, there was a ring. She was quite surprised. I had fooled her that, told her I was broke. And so they take a picture. And so I'm pouring sweat and I'm like, and, and she's like, it is the worst picture we have. It is horrible. She said, yes. Yeah, it was terrible. But when I made it very, very clear, Janie and I dated, you know, we, were, we never lived in the same city until we got married. So we dated long distance and we broke up. And, and when we got back together this last time, I said to her, I said, I, said, I just got to be honest with you. I'm not even going to go out with you this first time if there's not a possibility of marrying you because I'm done playing games. And she said, it's fine by me. Now, I did not know seven years before when I met her at youth camp, she turned to her best friend and said, I'm marrying that guy. Didn't know that. So it took me seven years to catch up. And so she's like, fine by me. You know, when I said I was going to date her, wasn't going to date her unless I had the chance of marrying her. So on her birthday, I proposed, and, and she said yes. Now, we didn't know what was going on. If anybody tells you, they, they don't know. But very often on, on our anniversary, I'll say, hey, baby, I, I still do. In fact, on our first wedding anniversary, I got her little little figurine, and that's what it said. It had a, had a ring, and the dude goes, I still do. When you come to the table, Jesus Christ is saying, I'm offering you my life. And when you take that cup and you eat that bread, you are saying, I do. Or I still do. It is the most expensive free gift you will ever receive. Go ahead and put that picture up there if you would. This is Jesus saying, will you marry me? And I know that may be weird if you're a guy, but he's, he's talking about a spiritual bride. The, the church is the bride of Christ. The church is made up of people who say, I will follow you. I accept your life, and I give you my life in return. So every time you take the Lord's Supper, you're saying, I re-up. I do it all again, Jesus. I will forsake all others. I'm not kind of married. This represents May 25th, 1991, when I stood before Janie, before God, before my brothers, before my parents, before a room full of people, and I said, I do. You're not kind of adopted into God's family. There has to be a time that you ask him to forgive you and lead you. So there's three remembrances. There's three looks. You look ahead to Jesus' return. Just as surely as he died, he's coming back. He has kept every promise he's ever given except I'm coming back. So if he's kept all those promises, even that he's going to raise from the dead, I, I believe he's coming back. So he said when we take the cup and, 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 and we eat the bread, we proclaim his death and resurrection until he returns again. He's coming back. I believe the tomb is empty. The reason the tomb is empty is because he's alive and he's coming back. Two, we look within. 
Paul said, we don't have to be worthy to take the Lord's Supper because you can't be worthy. You take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. What that means is you got to examine your heart. If there's sin in your heart and you come, if there's sin in your heart and you come to this table, we got, do we have a table at the back? I don't even know. Yes, we do. We got whatever table you come to, when you come to it, if there is blatant sin in your life, if you're just actively living in sin, you're spitting in the face of the Savior. You're despising the body of Jesus Christ. I don't think that's a good idea. And he says very clearly, if we examine ourselves, God doesn't have to examine us. But if you won't examine yourself and you spit in the face of his son, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you are dead because you have despised the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Remember, it is self-examination, not your neighbor's examination. What's he doing? Well, then you better not come. Jesus is going to deal with your neighbor. You must be concerned with what's in here. Solomon said, above all else, guard your heart because everything you do comes from your heart. And if you're judging your neighbor, it means you're ignoring your own sin. So you look ahead to Jesus' return. You look within to make sure there's no sin, and then you look around. Now, this is not to judge. This is if you know somebody has something against you, and you've not attempted to make things right with them, you don't need to come to the Lord's table. Now, I I always say this. In Romans, it says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody, which means some people are not going to live at peace with you. If people just, you know, telling you to to shove off and and forget it, and I want to have nothing to do with you, that really doesn't hurt my feelings because I'm not trying to please them. And so if I've tried and they say, step off, see ya. I'm not going to worry about that. I'm coming to the table. Now, if there, is, if there is open conflict and neither one of us has tried anything, then I better not come to the table. I gave my life to Christ when I was six years old. I was sitting in a little Baptist church. I remember it was a Sunday night, and I tugged on my brother's shoulder, and I said, hey, I'm, I want to get saved. And he said, go get saved. I didn't know he wasn't saved yet, all right? I'm six, my brother's 20, and uh, now maybe he got saved at 19. I don't remember. I don't remember the order, but he's like, go on. I said, no, you come with me. I'm scared to go. And so make my brother, my 20-year-old brother, walk me down to the front, and I gave my life to Christ, and nobody ever helped me grow spiritually. And so at 18, I prayed again on July 15, 1983. I prayed again because, because I wasn't sure I was in the kingdom of God. And so I have a book in my office over there that I can turn to the page when I prayed again. I was sitting in a at the Dallas Convention Center had a conference. And I said, you know, this is stupid for me to have doubts. I'm going to pray again. I believe I was saved when I was six, but I wrote it down when I was 18. And when I was 18 and wrote it down, that's when Satan quit whispering, you're not really a child of God. Because all I have to do is open up July 15th, 1983. I sealed the deal. May 25th, 1991, I sealed the deal. Now, I'm not suggesting that you do a spiritual autopsy today. Not suggesting, you know, that you fall out here and just blabber everything. No, 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 no. When you confess your sins, then, then you come to the table. Or if you, if you know that you have tried to, to make things right with someone and they won't make things right with you, come to the table. It's okay. But every time we take the Lord's Supper, there should be people. Not take the Lord's Supper. There should be people 
who very quietly step out and go and try to make things right. And you can call me later, and we'll do a drive-by Lord's Supper. Right? I'll come to you. But you don't even have to do that. In the Scripture, it doesn't have to be done by a preacher. If you're at home today, and I meant to tell you, I'm sorry I didn't tell you, if you feel that you've confessed and that you're right, go get some bread. If you don't have any juice, get water and pretend Jesus turned it into wine. I don't know. Grape juice for Baptists. Once you've confessed, you can thank God that you've been adopted. And you can take the Lord's Supper. Now, put those three pictures up there if you would, Kristen. So there's, there's two types of pictures up here that should not take the Lord's Supper. Okay, up here, this is, it's called the self-directed life. And you notice that there's an S on the chair, and all this is just activities that you have in your life, all these little dots. Notice where Christ is. Christ is not in this person's life. So they've not asked Christ to save them. The scripture is oh so clear that the Lord's Supper is for believers. And, and oh, the, the amount of ignorance on the internet is astounding. When people say, but Jesus fed Judas. Yes, the Passover meal. He did not feed him the Lord's Supper. I can show you very clearly where it says in John that immediately he left and then Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. So a non-Christian, if you've never asked Jesus to come into your life, don't feel anything wrong. There's going to be Christians leave. Just act like you're one of them. Just walk out or sit there. You can do. Or if it's time for you to come into the family of God, come see me. I'd love to lead you to Jesus today. Now, this person, this is who should take the Lord's Supper. Notice. There's all these activities, but Christ is at the center of the life and self is down here. Christ is on the throne. So how do you get there? You confess your sins. If you you know there's something wrong with, with you and someone else, you go make it right, then you come back. But notice this person. This is a Christian. So this is the self-directed life. This is the Christ-directed life. Look at this one, the self-directed life. Self is on the throne. Oh, I'm a Christian, but he's not leading my life. You should not come to the Lord's table because some of you are going to get sick, some of you are going to be weak, some of you are going to die because you spit in the face of the Savior. If this is you and you know you're on the throne of your life, you better spend some time praying before you come to the table. Does that make sense to everyone? Okay, so here's how we're going to do this. Go ahead and put those questions up there if you would. So here's how you examine your heart. We're just going to put on some music in a minute. We've got a whole playlist. We, we got, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes of playlist if we need it. You're going to examine your heart by, by confessing your sins specifically, not, God, forgive me my sin. I think God's like, which one? You, you need to confess them specifically. And I just put some categories, anger, lust, gossip, lying, judgment, idols of work or of power or of fame or of people selfishness, lack of faith, neglecting time with God or your family. Put the next one up, and then we'll come back to this one. If you would, Krista. And do you need to be reconciled to someone? All right, go back to the other one. I'm going to leave this up for a few minutes. And we're just going to kind of lower the lights a little bit. We're going to, we're going to put on some music. And here's, here's the deal. And, and, and I don't want this to be weird. I want this to be significant. In the Old Testament, whenever Moses had run away from Egypt and he had, um, 
he was, he was watching sheep. You remember the story of the burning bush. He sees this bush that's on fire and it's not being burned up, and he goes, and God meets him there. And God says, Moses, take off your shoes because you are on holy ground. Here's what I want us to do today. When you've examined your heart and you're ready to take the Lord's Supper, I want you to take your shoes off where you, and just leave them at where you are. I want this to be weird, but what we're signifying is I'm right with God and, and I'm approaching the table, whether you go to, what I don't care which table you go to, but I'm approaching it and I'm acknowledging that I'm standing on holy ground because the body and blood of Jesus, not literally, but figuratively, I'm saying I do again to my Savior. Janie and I, this, this May 25th, 30 years we've been married. And I'll tell her I do it again. And when times get hard, we fist bump and say, for better, for worse. We've, we've done that, but I, I love her more today than I comprehended 30 years ago. And you should love your Savior more today than you did when you came to Christ. So we're re-upping our commitment. I want you to put the picture of Jesus up there because I want you just to be reminded of what it cost him to offer you his life. And when you come to this table, you're saying, I do. He's saying, will you marry me spiritually? And you're saying, I do. I give my life to you. And when you're finished, and and I don't know how long this takes, but I'm going to ask you to leave this room in silence because this is holy ground. You can talk once you get past those doors. You know, We'll hear when the doors open and close, but there's going to be some pretty serious business happening in this room. You don't want to be a distraction.